Hey everyone, I'm your host, Wesley Tran, and welcome to Recovering Travel Junkie, a podcast where we'll be discussing how traveling has impacted a person's personal growth and purpose, and we'll be diving deeper to understanding the world's different human beings. Welcome to Recovering Travel Junkie. I'm Wesley, and today we have another special friend of mine. He is an organizational psychologist currently working in the realms of leadership assessment and diversity and inclusion at a consulting firm called Corn Ferry. He is a coffee enthusiast. He is also obsessed with spike ball, cocktails, and film photography. And he's also a networking coach. He is my friend, Viet Bui. Welcome. Thanks so much, Wesley. It's good, uh, it's good to be here. Excited to jump right into this conversation. Yeah, so excited. So Viet, the first question I always ask my guests is, do you remember our first interaction of how we met? Um, good question. I don't remember exactly our first interaction, but I know that we met at church in, uh, mm-hmm. in San Jose. So yeah, Barrios Alliance Church. And uh, man, I don't even know how many years ago. It was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> Probably like if I had a guess, you may have a better um, estimate, but if I had a guess, maybe like 10 years ago, eight, eight to 10 years ago, what do you think? Probably eight years ago, because I remember it was me entering high school, and I think you just left high school. Oh, uh, okay, okay. And so I think when my family moved churches, you were one of the first people we met too. And okay. So I think that was like our first interaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good memories, good memories. <laughs> yeah. So, Viet, can you tell us what exactly is orga- organizational psychology? Sure, yeah. So, um, organizational psychology is this interesting field that not many people um, know about, but it's, you know, it's slowly gain- gaining more traction over the years. Um, I like to tell people that it's a mix between business and psychology. Um and I think what, what kind of differentiates or separates organizational psychology from other fields is that we specialize in, in measuring um, people's behaviors and kind of like their mental capacities and their traits in companies, right? So a lot of people, they, they kind of stumble into organizational psychology that, you know, they come into undergrad, uh, undergrad and they think, they're going to pursue, you know, clinical psychology or therapy, but they end up, you know, shifting to organizational psychology because they want to see the mix between um, psychology, you know, ment- the mental capacity and behaviors as well as business. So, yeah, that's kind of an overview of the field. It's weirdly specific yet broad at the same time. Like a lot of my classmates in my grad program went into different fields. Um, even though it's kind of a niche field. So, so yeah, that's, that's kind of a, that's, that's what org, org psych is. Yeah. So what got you interested in org psych and wanting to pursue it full time? Yeah. So I, I was a freshman in, uh, I was a freshman in undergrad and I came in to college as an economics and business major. Um, and I took a few classes like intro to accounting and microecon, but it didn't really sit well with me. I wasn't that fascinated by it. And I wanted to switch to psychology. 
and I thought I would be, you know, a clinical psychologist or a marriage and family therapist, uh, therapist. Um, so I switched to general psychology, uh, my spring semester of freshman year. And then my dad sent me an article about organizational psychology. And he was just like, Hey, check out this field, you know, read about it online, check out this article. And also like one, one of his best friends, dads, um, was an organizational psychologist. So I would, you know, I would talk to him, my, my dad's friend about it and whatnot, and do my online research. And, uh, yeah, that's initially what got me interested. Um, because I, I think, you know, I had a knack for wanting to learn more about business, but I was also interested in learning more about people and how they tick and why they do certain things and their personality traits. So yeah, that's what initially got me interested. But honestly, like I, I'm still learning more about it every day. And I feel like you can never learn everything about your field, especially when, you know, I was only 18, 19 when I first started to learn about it. So I'm, you know, I'm still learning every day and it's, uh, and that's why, that's what makes it a cool field because I keep growing in it and I, I keep, uh, being curious. That's awesome. And I want to move on to talking about your hometown of Los Gatos. And so it's super close to my hometown of San Jose. Can you tell us how it was growing up in Los Gatos and where exactly it is on the map for our viewers? Yeah, for sure. So Los Gatos is in the Bay Area um, in California. It's in the South Bay Area. And uh, people might know San Jose uh, better. So it's, it's about 15 minutes from San Jose. Small town, um, I think it's about 30,000 people or less. Um, and yeah, I, I grew up in Los Gatos uh, from basically birth until 18, until I moved away from college. Um, and honestly, it's, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a great childhood. I mean, the town is cool. It's, uh, there's actually quite a bit of old people in this town and um mm. yeah i live five minutes away from downtown so you know we would eat out there and you know get ice cream there and whatnot um so yeah it's 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 pretty quaint it's not as city like it's not nearly as city like as you know san francisco or even san jose it's it's more of a small town feel mm -hmm. yeah that's awesome and Whenever you travel, what's one thing that you're proud of, of being from Los Gatos slash Bay Area? Like you take pride in this one thing. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, well, one thing when I travel is that when people ask where I'm from, you know, I usually say um, the Bay Area, California. And the first thing that always pops up is, oh, they have perfect weather. You know, people love to talk about how good the weather is in, uh, in California. So that's probably, I mean, it's, it's kind of a silly thing to be proud of, but I think that the Bay area has the best weather, you know, maybe, maybe in the world, or it's definitely up there. And even this week on a work call, I, I was talking to a client who's based in Illinois in a town near Chicago. And, uh, she was just like, Oh, how's the weather? And, you know, in the Bay Area. And I said, oh, you know, it's like 80s or 90s. And she was like, oh, wow, poor you, you know, that, that's so rough that you have such good weather. And then that day in Chicago or in Illinois, 
it was like 25 degrees and I think almost snowing. Um, so yeah, definitely proud of, that's weird, it's weird to say, but I'm proud of the weather and it's just very chill, you know, people mm. in the Bay are known as being chill and especially living in New York now, um, people, people can kind of tell when you're from California because you're laid back and, and that's something I'm proud of. You know, I don't want to be mm. just that hustle and bustle type of guy. I want to be someone who people can look to as like, Oh, he's, he's the chill, relaxed dude who doesn't get stressed too easily. So I'm definitely proud of that. Mm. That's so cool. And I think that's such a great transition transition into our next area, the place where you spent your undergrad, which is Santa Barbara. What do you think the weather was like in there in comparison to San Jose? And can you tell us more about your time in Santa Barbara and undergrad? Yeah, for sure. Um, the weather in Santa Barbara actually might be better than the Bay, um, mm -hmm. or it's, it's pretty similar. Um, I felt like it was always, you know, 70, 75 with a light breeze and, uh, especially being near the beach. I mean, it was just, yeah, it was, it was great weather. So yeah. Um, as you mentioned, I spent, uh, my undergrad years there. So yeah, four years total in Santa Barbara. Um, and I specifically went to Westmont college, which is tucked away in Montecito, which is a neighborhood in Santa Barbara. And it's known as the, sounds snobby saying, but the, the quote unquote rich neighborhood of SB, you know, where Oprah lives. And I think Steve Martin lives there and, you know, other celebrities. Um, so Westmont was kind of this campus on, on this hill in Montecito. And yeah, honestly, it was, I mean, it was some of the best years of my life. The, the lifestyle of Santa Barbara is incredible. It's a, it's a small town. So, you know, when I, we go to my favorite coffee shop, French press or handlebar. You run into a bunch of people, you know, in or outside of Westmont college and, um, the beach is right there. So I would go to the beach multiple times a week, you know, play spike ball, um, swim in the ocean, body surf. Uh, I did, I tried surfing a couple of times, but I, I was really bad at it, but I still <laughs> try to get better at it. Um, so yeah, and it, you know, it has that beachy, very, very chill vibe. Um, mm. So yeah, it's definitely, and we'll get into New York later, but it's definitely in a lot of ways the opposite of New York uh, because yeah, people in SB are just so laid back, kind of hang loose attitude. Um, but yeah, college was great. I mean, it was so fun. We were just right there next to the beach and we had a downtown uh, we had really good coffee, which, you know, I'm obsessed with and pretty good food. So yeah, college, the college years were pretty enjoyable. Hmm. What's one moment you recollect that you found to have a lot of impact and growth upon yourself? Like if it were a tough moment that you found yourself growing, or if it was a moment where you took a big risk and a big leap of faith that you found worked well for you. You know, I, I would say that one pivotal moment slash uh, decision during my times in, in Santa Barbara was the, the decision to go to this church called Isla Vista Church or IVC. And it's actually the church that my, my older brother used to go to when he was at UCSB. Um, so he recommended it to me and I started going. And it was, it was definitely a different church experience from, you know, our church back at home. 
um, because, mm-hmm. because it was more, it was a little more charismatic and kind of, you know, quote unquote hippie esque. Um, but one of the ministries of this church was called, uh, Jesus burgers. And basically the, the short and sweet of this ministry is that every Friday night is a big party night in Isla Vista because that's where UCSB is. And UCSB is like a top 10 party school in, uh, you know, in the U S. Um, but Friday night, there's this one street called Del Playa or DP and the parties are just like crazy on that street. They, you know, it's, it's pretty insane and loud music and, you know, 20,000 people and everything. But, um, with this ministry called Jesus burgers, you know, we would just basically make 200 to 300 burgers and hand it out to the partiers for free. And we would just try to talk to them, you know, if they want a conversation, cool. We talk to them if they wanted prayer, you know, cool, even better. Like we'll pray for them. Just want to support them and, and, and be there for the people of Isla Vista. So I think just, you know, the, the members of that were in, you know, kind of just trying to be there for people without asking anything in return. And, you know, it's not like we were trying to become someone's savior or anything. We just want to be there for people. We just want to hand them a burger. If you want a conversation, cool. If you want prayer, cool, but Hey, here's a burger. We just want to like spread the love. So, um, yeah, that was a super fond memory, met a bunch, a bunch of cool people, um, in that church, you know, people who I still have an impact on my life. Um, so yeah, I'm very fond of, of that time in, in Santa Barbara. Was there a conversation or interaction that you've had during your time serving at Jesus Burgers that stuck out to you? You know, my, my memory is a bit faded right now, you know, with these, with these memories during Jesus burgers. But I think I recall one time when, um, we prayed for a few people who, who I think had back and knee pain. And, um, you know, I honestly don't remember if that pain totally went away or whatnot, but I, I think I do remember them just feeling, supported and loved and that someone cared, you know, and even if, yeah, I forgot exactly if the pain went away or not, but I think they left that conversation feeling cared for, you know, and, and feeling that, whoa, someone would take the time to just pray for some pain that I'm feeling in my body. Like that's pretty cool. You know, Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I think it's just little moments like that where it's like, okay, that, you know, that definitely leaves an impact on my life in teaching me that it, it takes, it only takes something little to care for someone, whether it's a small conversation or whether it's a small little prayer. Hmm. That is so amazing. And if someone were to visit Santa Barbara, what's one thing you would recommend to, for them to do? like a must do for a traveler? Um, Just because I love talking about coffee, I would say go to my favorite coffee shop in Santa Barbara, shameless plug. It's called uh, the French press and their, their roastery arm or their, yeah, their roastery brand is is called Dune. Um, But the cafe is called French press. And yeah, this place was just so awesome because as I touched on before, I would just walk in and you would immediately see people you knew and just catch up with them, have a coffee with them. And I, I knew a lot of people who 
who worked there and, and still work there actually. So, you know, you would just catch up with the barista and, and I love, I love that type of interaction. I love knowing, you know, who my barista is or who my bartender or sometimes waiter. You know, like I love that interaction with, between customers and, and um, people who are working in that space. So yeah, I would say just go to French press, get a cappuccino, talk to the baristas, talk to the people roasting coffee, learn from them, learn, learn more about coffee and just, yeah, you could even grab to go, go to the beach, you know, swim in the ocean. Um, so yeah, shameless plug for French press and doing coffee. <laughs> All right. French press is added on my list. Yeah. Right on. And so during your time in undergrad, you also technically studied abroad Mm-hmm. to San Francisco. Yep. Tell us about your experience there. Yeah, so it was a, <laughs> it was unexpected <laughs> because actually I was planning to go um, to Jerusalem for a semester in Jerusalem, so four months there. And I was going to go with, I mean, some of my best friends in college. And, uh, you know, we all got approved to go and got accepted and everything, and we're so stoked. Um, but at that time, I think it was the spring of 2015 it was really dangerous in, uh, you know, that area of the world. And um, so the, the school and, and other schools throughout the U.S. and the world decided that it wouldn't be to have a semester in Jerusalem. So all these study abroad programs that were supposed to be in Israel got canceled. And then we had a pivot. And we were really sad, obviously, because, you know, we wanted to we wanted to be in Jerusalem. I've never been there. I've never been to Israel. But, you know, we had a pivot and um, some of us who were supposed to go there ended up going to San Francisco. And, I, you know, I was kind of bummed about it because I'm, I'm from the Bay. But at the same time, I, I wanted to treat it with an, an open mind, you know. So and plus, I never lived in San Francisco. I would visit because my, you know, my, my grandpa lives up here. But I, I really didn't know the city that well. And even though I'm an hour from it, I, I still didn't know you know, the ins and outs of what it feels like to live in, in SF. So we went to SF and basically this study abroad was study, quote unquote abroad. It was all about getting an internship and, um, that would, that would count as credits, you know, for a class basically. So we were interviewing for different internships and what, and whatnot. I was a psych major, so I wanted to get something psych related and, Ended up, I actually got an internship at um, SF General Hospital, which is, you know, a uh, a big public trauma, level one trauma hospital in SF, really intense. And I served as a chaplain there, actually. And uh, yeah, it's it's actually really cool to be talking about it now because I often don't reflect on this experience, but I should because it was such a crazy time in my life and crazy internship. Um yeah, I'd probably say one of the one of the more impactful internships. So basically, my my job was, you know, for any patients who wanted a, a chaplain or just someone to talk to, someone to listen to their worries, to their anxieties and whatnot, someone to just talk to and maybe pray with them. They would they would request a chaplain. And in my office, there um, there were a lot of different types of chaplains, right? Buddhist. Um, Catholic. Uh, yeah, there was none that I got close to, um, Jewish, you know, rabbi. So a lot of different types of chaplains and a lot of them were old. You know, I remember my friend who was a nun was, was 78 
and she had wow. like 30 or 40 years of experience doing this. And I was this young kid. I was, you know, 20, 21 at the time. And I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was visiting very ill patients and trying to be there for them, trying to learn how to listen. Um, you know, some people had AIDS, some people had cancer, you know, a lot of people had mental illness. So I went to the psych ward a couple of times. So it was a very kind of like intense time, but, um, I mean, it taught me so much. It taught me about the power of listening and the power of presence, just being there for someone and being silent. Sometimes the most powerful thing you could do is to just sit with someone and sit in their pain together with them in solidarity and, and be there. And I learned how powerful and impactful that for, for a lot of these patients. Hmm. Wow. That's so amazing. And can you tell us more about the impact it had on you? Did it influence your decision to switch to organizational psychology? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, the in influence that I had. Yeah. So yeah, it taught me the importance of how to listen and how to be patient with listening and how to show compassion and empathy um what did that look like that that looked like very you know very small things very simple things that i would do which is just sit you know sit the grab a chair sit close to the patient and have good eye contact with them and and really through my body language show that i care right whether that's nodding right if they're telling me about something painful, like nodding and acknowledging that I'm listening to their pain and, and looking at them, you know, because a lot of them, a lot of these people were homeless, right? So they, oh, wow. they, and you, you probably have seen this too, where a lot of people don't give homeless people eye contact, right? So for me to just show eye contact, like that's kind of a big deal for them. And that's a powerful point of connection. So eye contact, other things in body language, like nodding and just acknowledging that I'm there. And, um, you know, a, a lot of active listening and saying, and saying stuff like, Hey, so I'm hearing this. Is that right? I'm hearing that. Um, does that, you know, does that resonate with you? Um, and praying with them, you know, when they want a prayer. Um, yeah. And in terms of, if that impacted my decision to go into organizational psychology, well, I, I would say, yeah. I, um, I would say, yeah, definitely. I, I think that I was, I felt like one of my strengths during that internship was that I, I had this emotional capacity to not get too bogged down by all the heavy things I was hearing. So I would, you know, I would go to my internship, I would take the bus home. And then at home, I was kind of normal. Like I wasn't that it's, it kind of sounds like I was callous, but like I, I had a separation between mm -hmm. what I heard at work and at home. So I felt like I had that emotional capacity, which made me think, okay, maybe I could go into something like marriage and family therapy or go into clinical psychology. But at the same time, I think I knew that um, I couldn't do that day in, day out for a 30 to 40 to 50 year career. You know, I think I could do that 
for a semester like I did, or maybe I could do it once or twice a week, um, you know, go into the office and do clinical psych and do therapy for a little bit. But I couldn't really see myself doing that day in and day out. At the same time, a lot of those skills can be applied to my current job in consulting, right? Because I feel like in business, a lot of what you're supposed to do is listen well, you know, and um, that's what being a chaplain taught me, how to listen to people and how to listen to clients and how to listen to other employees. And, you know, if someone, if an employee or a colleague has a problem and they're trying to, you know, figure out a solution or going, they're going through a lot of anxiety, they're really stressed about their work and they're staying in the office till like 11 or 12 and they're really stressed out. How can I, as a good employee, be there for him, be there for them and listen to their problems and be compassionate and say, Hey, I hear you. And I know that you're really stressed out and know that you're really busy, but Hey, can I help in this way? So I think those skills are kind of lifelong skills that I can apply to not only work, but you know, tons of stuff outside of work, church, uh, friendships, community, you know, whoever, whoever needs a listening ear. Um, so yeah, I, I really gained a lot from, from that experience as, as a chaplain. Wow. That is such an amazing insight. And can you tell us about how it was transitioning from one part of the Bay Area to another part of the Bay Area? Yeah, for sure. So San Francisco is very different from Los Gatos. Um, One thing is transportation, right? In the South Bay Area, everyone has a car. Families have like two cars, three cars. So that's transportation in the South Bay. In SF, um, you know, not many people have cars. I mean, maybe people who live in the outer parts, right? Like I think Richmond or the Sunset, they, they probably own cars. But a lot of young professionals just take the bus or they bike. So, yeah, when I first moved to SF, I, I had a Clipper card, which is kind of your bus pass. So I took the bus a lot. But I slowly learned that the bus system sucks in SF. And I'm sure that it still sucks, you know, five years later. Um, so some of my housemates actually started biking in SF and I, I took that on as well. So I started biking to my internship and biking around and, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty hard because as people might know, I'm not the most fit person ever, you know, trying to get better, but definitely not the most fit person ever. And for anyone know who knows SF, there's a lot of Hills. It's very, it's extremely hilly. So biking up and down hills, you know, it it takes a lot of, uh, it takes a lot out of you. Um, but that was pretty fun for me to just bike to work. And it was definitely a stress reliever, even though it was tough at times to bike up and down. So that's one thing, transportation is different, but I, I really enjoyed, you know, biking throughout the city and exploring it that way, because I feel like you take a lot more in. I remember even memories of, biking to the hospital at 8 a.m. and you see bakeries opening up and you smell the bread and you see coffee shops opening up and whatnot. And that was really cool for me. And uh, just uh, taking that moment of not too many people on the streets, not too many people driving. Um, And besides that, yeah, SF is like a real, it's like a real city city, not as intense as New York that we'll get into later, but um, it's kind of a chiller, more chill, relaxed New York. And obviously the center of everything tech related. So I remember meeting people, everyone seemed to work at a startup. I would be like 
yo, where do you work? Oh, startup, startup, you know, Facebook, or <laughs> this company or another, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever tech company fill in the blank, you know? So, um, yeah, tech is huge there. Um, but it was just a cool city, man. Really good coffee. Um, I remember one of my favorite shops was called the mill. It was near my house and, uh, near the panhandle part of SF. And, uh, yeah, this coffee shop had the best toast in the world and people made fun of it because the toast was so expensive. It was like five bucks or four fifty. but for me, it was worth every penny because the bread was just the best bread I've ever tasted. So I spent a lot of time there and they would have Monday night pizza nights and they had also really good coffee. Um, so yeah, the coffee scene on point food was on point. Um, it was just, it was just a really, it was a cool city because it was a city, but it also had that chillness of California, you know? Hmm. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I appreciated about, uh, about SF. That's awesome. So Viet, I understood in your undergrad years, you also went on a choir tour to Latvia and Russia. Can you tell us more about that and how the experience was? Yeah, for sure. So junior year of college, I wanted to join choir um, just because I knew some cool people on it. And and this is pretty selfish, but I knew that they were going to go on an international trip somewhere. I didn't know that it would end up being Latvia and Russia. But in my head, I'm thinking like, oh, choir would be cool. You know, it's college. Why not try something new? Um, and I would learn how to do better. And, you know, there's some chill people in the choir. So I joined and ended up, we had this, this huge choir tour to Latvia and, uh, and Russia. And actually originally it was going to be Ukraine and Russia, but exactly like how Jerusalem went, we couldn't go to Ukraine because uh, there was some unrest there at the time as well. So I think there's a common theme in my life about planning to go somewhere. And then there's a lot of, you know, political unrest in in those places. We ended up going to Latvia and Russia and in my mind, I was thinking, Oh, cool. Latvia. Like no one, no one ever goes to Latvia. Like when was the last time you heard a friend be like, yo, I'm going to go to Europe. It's going to be a dope trip to Latvia. Like no one, no one goes, (laughs) people hardly ever go to Eastern Europe. Right. It's just kind of a low key thing that people don't like people would rather go to like Paris or like Spain, you know? So I was like, okay, cool. Like this would be, this would be cool. Like learning more about Latvia. And, and I had been to Russia once before I had been to, you know, St. Petersburg once before, but I didn't, I didn't really get to know that well. So the plan was, um, go to Vilnius and Klaipeda in Latvia and then go to, uh, Moscow and then St. Petersburg. And then we would be performing in different venues and, and churches. Um, and I don't know how our choir director made these connections, but you know, he made these connections so that we would have these, all these shows lined up and it was actually a really well-balanced trip because it wasn't too much of doing the shows and singing and being exhausted from that, but also it wasn't too much of like, hey, let's just hang out and explore the city. It was a really good balance. Like one day on, you know, um, doing a show in a, in a cathedral or something, one day off where you would explore the city and just hang out with people. Um, mm. So yeah, it was it was great. We, yeah, I remember this one huge cathedral in I think it was Russia that we performed in and they just had incredible acoustics like when we 
when we sang the voice, the sound just traveled like so beautifully because it had, you know, it had these cool domes and just the acoustics were incredible. Um, so I specifically remember that, that cathedral, it was, it was huge. And, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was a lot of great memories of just like chilling with people. And I remember in Latvia, my biggest takeaway from Latvia was that it was such an underrated country. Like I left Latvia thinking like, why don't, why don't people come here? Like, it's so cool because, um, it was very green first and foremost, super green. We went to, you know, I mean, they, they weren't forests, but they, they seemed like forests, like super lush green. And it, it was kind of a, it was kind of a grungy area. Like th- these were grungy cities and I like, I kind of like grunginess, right? I think it has a lot of mm-hmm. character, you know, and they're not trying to impress anyone cause they know they don't have that many tourists. So, um, Oh, I, I, I remember, I remember this one kind of sketchy story in Latvia. Um, so one night we were back in, we were staying in this Latvian college dorm for the night Mm -hmm. and I forgot the connection, but these two random Latvian dudes like pulled up and they were like, Hey, you guys want to like, you guys want to hang out and like go drink? And we were like, what, like, who are you again? Like, I forgot, (laughs) I forgot their connection. They're probably like maybe they were students at the school that we stayed at or something. And, um, so a group of us from the choir went, you know, and we didn't know where they would take us. It was kind of sketch, you know, but they ended up taking us to some like empty apartment. And I remember going to the apartment thinking like, dude, what if they, what if something goes down? Like, what if they're actually sketch and like rob us and beat the crap out of us, you know? And, and just like, I don't know, like drug. I, I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe I wasn't thinking that, but like, you know, I was like, oh, this might be a sketchy situation. And I mean, ended up, it was, it was perfectly safe. We just hung out and in their apartment and then they drove us back. Like it was, it was cool. We just talked about our cultures and whatnot. Um, so yeah, that story just came to mind. I totally forgot about that. But yeah, that was, that was pretty fun. Yeah, were there any interesting cultural perks that you've learned from the Latvians? Um, like they do things a certain way or... If I, if I remember correctly, and maybe... I don't remember too much from the Latvian people specifically, but I remember from the Russians that um, I think the quote unquote stereotype of Russians is that they're kind of initially cold, you know, and don't really like let you in too easily. And I think, I think that's a lot of Europe, actually. I think that's a stereotype of, um, of Europeans. And, you know, like any, like any stereotype, you have to take it with a grain of salt. You know, it doesn't mean that, Oh, like everyone is like this, you know, it, Mm-hmm. it's it's just a stereotype so you you know you have to take it with a grain of salt um so i remember that from i think i had to keep that in mind when i was uh interacting with with the with russian you know people that i met that maybe their first instinct is not to 
become my best friend. Like, you know, in California, everyone's so friendly at first, even if you don't know the person, but, and, um, you know, I had to keep my mind that in Russia, that, that might not be the case, right. They have to kind of build that trust first and then they could, uh, let you in. Mm. And yeah, speaking of Russia, how was your time at Moscow and St. Petersburg? Yeah, it was, it was great. Um, again, we, we had kind of a balance of, um, of exploring the cities as well as doing, uh, various shows. And yeah, I love, I love St. Petersburg because there's a lot of beautiful canals and, um, awesome views like that. Uh, so yeah, St. Petersburg is just a gorgeous city. And yeah, I want to tell this one story of kind of a train robbery, if you will, from, from our train to, uh, from, uh, Moscow to St. Petersburg. So, um, yeah, this is kind of a, a scary story that I like to tell people, but (laughs) anyway, so we were about to board this train, which was going to be overnight. And to just set some context, this overnight train had rooms with a sliding door that you could close and lock and uh, two bunk beds per room. So four people total per room. So that we, that's how we split all, you know, the whole choir. It's all these rooms. Mm-hmm. And before we got on the train, our conductor or our, our choir director said, Hey guys, uh, just to let you know, this is an overnight train and it's known for, having people who might, you know, break into your room while you're sleeping and steal stuff. Yeah. Um, and we were like, Oh shoot. That, that kind of makes sense because it's an overnight train, but that's still really sketch and scary. Um, and I remember thinking in my head, like, yeah, sure. We'll close the door and we'll lock it, but that's probably not going to happen. I mean, what, you know, how likely is it that someone is just going to come into our small, tiny, room in this train and, and steal. Right. So I was like, Oh yeah, well, you know, we'll, we'll close the door and whatnot, but I don't think anything will happen. Right. Mm-hmm. So ended up, you know, we go on the train, we go into our respective rooms and then sleep, wake up the next morning. We're, we're having breakfast in, uh, in St. Petersburg. And then I start to hear stories of people, uh, missing money. Right. Um, so the first story I heard, which, which is pretty freaky. Um, so one of my friends, she, she had this purse on the nightstand right next to her head as she was sleeping. Right. So the purse is on the nightstand and she had this kind of like secret compartment or, or pocket inside the purse. And that's where she kept her, her Russian cash. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the next morning that cash was missing. So apparently wow. the the conclusion is that someone like broke into their room and rummaged through her purse, found this secret pocket and stole the cash. Right. What? And, and that's not even the, that's not even the scarier story. So there's an, another story, um, of, of my buddies in, in the room and they, you know, they were having some late night talk, just like in their bunk beds, laying down, talking. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was it was probably 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. And then 
so how the door is, is it's 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 one of those locks where like there's there's still kind of a an opening between the door and the wall, and then you put like that hanger lock over a hook, basically, and that's how it, that's how it's locked. Um, but my my buddy is talking to his roommates on the train at 2 a.m. and then he sees a hand like come in through that slit Whoa. and kind of feel around for like a bag or cash somewhere, you know, somewhere near the door opening. Oh dang. And, and you know, he saw that, but he didn't react fast enough because it was it was such a shock, right? So he couldn't like he didn't react fast enough to grab, you know, to grab the hand or be like, hey, he was just kind of in shock. And then the hand went away and because it couldn't you know, find any bags or cash right away. And I heard that story and I was like, dude, this is crazy. Like that's, that's insane, man. Jeez. All on one train ride. Yeah. Just on one overnight train ride, two rooms got hit like that. Pretty crazy. That's crazy. And with your experience in choir, do you find yourself singing more often ever since then? You know, it's, it's funny. I've actually, <laughs> it's, it's funny you mentioned singing because um, since quarantine happened and since I've been back at home at my parents for the last seven to eight weeks, I, I hopped back on the piano and started doing, you know, started uh, just playing simple chords and, and singing and trying to mess around with covers and whatnot. And honestly, I really miss it because back in my time in college and especially with choir oh another thing i didn't mention was that i was part of a like kind of a folky band back in college called oh, wow. riverside. oh check us out on spotify shameless plug the riverside um riverside <laughs> i'm not part of it anymore but they're still going strong and still making music uh but yeah check us out on spotify um so i was part of that band in college and you know we just folk music and whatnot and i played violin and did backup vocals for that so that paired up with choir you know really got me into music even though i was into music my whole life but that really got me passionate about like different types of music because in, in choir we sang you know more traditional classical songs in, in my band folky songs and we did shows you know at houses and in backyards and different venues um mm. but then i went through like this whole period after college where i wasn't really involved in music so i went to new york and you know, we'll get into that later, but like, I didn't, I wasn't really singing at all. I wasn't playing violin. I wasn't part of a choir. So, but be, being back at home the last eight weeks, it really made me miss music and miss singing. And, you know, it's definitely one cool way to just express yourself and to, to kind of let off steam and de-stress. So yeah, I've hopped on the piano a few times in the last couple weeks and it's, it felt great just to like, Hey, I want to cover the song. Let me look up the simple chords on Google and just hop on and like figure out how to do the cover. Um, so yeah, I definitely miss that part. And, and one, one more thing I'll say about choir was it was, it was a challenge for me because you know, how you know, some people who harmonizing for them comes so easily, like they could just, they hear a melody and they could figure out the harmony, like, right away like by ear mm -hmm. i was never yeah. one of those people. and i'm i'm still i'm still not one of those people but in choir um it was such a challenge for me to learn my specific like tenor or baritone part um especially when everyone else around me is singing in their own parts you know and i had to like kind of like 
you know, figuratively cover my ears and just like focus on my part. And then usually how choirs work is that you sit with all the tenors, right? And all the sopranos sit with all, sit with all the sopranos, all the altos sit with the altos. But then I remember in the middle of the year, my choir director was like, all right, everyone, everyone's going to be mixed up. You're going to sit next to a soprano and a, and an alto and a bass. And the wow. purpose of this is to not only challenge us, but to really spread the sound smoothly throughout the whole choir so that you're equally hearing, you know, as an audience, you're equally hearing the tenors and sopranos and altos and basses. So once he wow. did that, like the challenge just 2X did 3X, you know, got mm-hmm. so much harder. And I was like, oh man, I really have to learn my part now. Um, so yeah, I love that challenge because I really had to work hard to be like, okay, what's my part? How do I sing well? How do I, you know, sing with good form? And because I, I felt like, I kind of felt imposter syndrome that everyone else in the choir was so much more talented than I was. So it was a cool opportunity for me to learn and just improve in my, you know, musical abilities. Wow. That's so amazing at how choir pushed you to chase after your musical abilities and how this time of quarantine revived all that musical talent again. And I think it's the perfect transition to talk about your life after college, which was more schooling in New York city. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so senior year of college, like every senior in the world in undergrad, you're thinking, Oh my gosh, what's my life purpose? What am I supposed to do? Like, should I work? Should I do more school? Should I take a gap year? Should I go on a missionary trip? Like, what do I do? Um, and the way, the way I make decisions is kind of like, kind of, reckless in a way for people might think it's reckless i tend to underthink rather than overthink which is which is funny i'm kind of irrational in that way but mm-hmm. i feel like a lot of people around me overthink and they get paralyzed by their thinking which is you know it's not always a bad thing but i try to go the other way and be like okay um i've seen the paralysis that my friends have in terms of they overthink a decision and then they don't take any steps. So for me, the decision to go to New York was kind of, it wasn't a rash decision. Like I definitely thought about it and definitely like prayed about it and talked to other people um, about the pros and cons. But in the end, it was kind of like, in my thinking, I thought like, okay, I just had to take a step and um, I just had to decide okay, am I going to move to New York or not? And then I eventually decided, okay, I'm going to move there. And then I would just make the best of whatever that that life in New York has to offer, right? Um, so, yeah, ended up getting into NYU for grad school uh, to study organizational psychology. It was a two-year program. Um, and, yeah, after, after thinking about it for a little bit, but not, again, not overthinking, I decided to take it um, because... I talked to the uh, the director of the program and some current students, and the takeaway that I got from that program compared to others is that it was very applied. Like it wasn't just about theory and schooling and education; it was all about how do you take what you learn and really apply it to like a consultant job or to whatever field that that you're going in. So that's kind of what really attracts me me to that. And another thing. Um, to share is that New York living in New York was always my dream actually since high school when I was in high school I wanted to go to NYU and uh, for undergrad but that didn't end up working out um but I always was so attracted to this um 
to the city, to New York mm -hmm. and to the lifestyle. So it was kind of surreal for me to decide to go there. It was kind of like a dream, like, whoa, amazing. I decided to go to New York. Like, this is one of my big dreams in life. Um, mm. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I could go on and on about New York and maybe we could get into specifics, but in terms of generalities, yeah, there's, there's no, there's no city like New York. And I know that's a really generic thing to say, but it's honestly truthful that, um, it's, it's one of a kind, you know, it's a city that people love, people love to work in New York and people come to New York to pursue their quote unquote passion or career. And they want to be the best in whatever field they pursue, whether it's Broadway or jazz or, you know, songwriting or finance, lawyer, uh, engineer, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's definitely that type of city where people want to be the best that they could be. And yeah, one general thing I'll say, and then we go to more specifics is that before New York, I was honestly not that ambitious, um, mm -hmm. which is weird to say now I was, I was kind of like, you know what, like I'll pick a career and I think it'll be good, but like, I won't be that into it. It'll be kind of like, whatever, it's my career, like cool, you know, nine to five, go home, whatever. It's not, it won't be that big a part of my identity, but actually New York has changed me a lot in these, oh, wow, almost four years now, about three and a half to four years in that, um, in that now, like I, I really want to connect and I have connected my work with my identity and I don't want to do it in, in an unhealthy way where like, Oh yeah, I want to work like 90 hours a week and that's all I am. I I'm just my job. No, I want to do it in like a healthy way where it's like, okay, we were meant to work and we were meant to try to find, you know, what brings us joy. And I also believe that at the end of the day, work is work, right? Like in whatever dream job I have or whatever dream job you have, like you're, you're going to be tired of it at some point and work is going to become work. Um, but mm -hmm. at the same time, there's probably jobs that are better suited for you rather than, or compared to other jobs. So for me, like that's one change where like, I'm a lot more ambitious now. And, and I try to, and I, I definitely like, I think I have that balance between ambition, but also like, okay, there's definitely a lot more to life rather than work. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm truly, I'm truly passionate about my field and what I do. So that's, yeah, that's a that's little amazing. Bit. Yeah. So do you think the pressures of New York city motivated you to chase after your ambition or was it just the opportunity that was there that motivated you to pursue after it just cause it was right there? Yeah. You know, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think the, the pressure gets to you, right. Because you see, and especially when I first arrived in New York, I was actually mentally and emotionally um, exhausted in my first few months in New York because everyone tries to act like so strong and so put together in New York. Like they act like they're the best in their fields. And, you know, some of them granted are the best in their fields. Like that's why they came to New York. But everyone kind of puts on this persona of like, I'm really strong. I'm really confident. I'm the best. And that actually really uh, made me exhausted. But, I, but at the same time, like it pushes you because you see all these people so passionate about their fields. And even when you meet people, 
you talk about like the question is all about, Hey, Hey, what do you do? You know, and you talk about, you might talk about that for like an hour or so. Um, so that's part of, uh, the New Yorkers identity, right? So that pressure gets to you where you're like, Oh shoot, this person is like killing it in law, or this person is like killing it in trying to be a dancer or make it on Broadway. Like I should be killing it. And I, I don't think that's like the best reason to like to be good in your field. But the reality of it is that it, it does push you, right? It, it pushes you if everyone else around you is trying to be the best in their field. Um, and like, that's what I like, you, you know, that famous quote, like if you're, if you're the smartest person in the room, like you're in the wrong room, like that is mm-hmm. so true in New York, because no matter how quote unquote successful someone thinks they are in whatever domain they're in, in New York, you'll find a bunch of people who are better in that field. So that pressure gets to you, but at the same time, like you mentioned opportunity and the opportunity that's, um, that's there for you in New York. And yeah, that opportunity was definitely there for me, um, in terms of my current job. Um, and it was, it was kind of like, it it wasn't exactly right place, right time, because I was unemployed for three or four months and that was very hard. And that taught me a lot. And, you know, it was, Mm -hmm it was tough to like be job searching for three to four months. But like when the opportunity came, it was, it was the right opportunity because I sit within the assessment succession team at corn Ferry, And for someone who is an organizational psychologist and like, and studied this corn Ferry is kind of that perfect, like fit like a glove in terms of, you know, what we study and what we want to apply. So in my team and assessment, a lot of people, the majority of the people have a background in organizational psychology. So it was a good fit and the opportunity was, was kind of perfect. Um, so yeah, I've, I've learned so much in my current job in the past, uh, year and it's it's almost, yeah, it's almost six months, a year and six months into this job. It's about a year and four months right now. Wow. That's so awesome. And what were the other challenges you faced when you transitioned from California to New York? Yeah, one transition is the pace. I mean, I I talked about, you know, before in Bay Area and Santa Barbara, it's so laid back, so chill. That's kind of what New York is known, or not New York, but California is known for. But in New York, man, it's just like, go, go, go so fast, even walking, taking subway, getting off the train, getting on the train walking to work like it's it's just boom and boom and that's so not part of my natural personality so that was hard for me and it's still hard for me but one thing that I try to do is I try I try to mend the two so I try to bring the slowness of my California vibe to the fast paces of New York but then what I love about New York is like the ambition and the calling that people have on their lives and the connection to work and I I try to emulate that as well. Um, but yeah, so the pace was definitely hard and you just see another, another hard thing about New York is you just see a lot of weird things and even something as simple as a commute, like in California, a commute, maybe besides LA, but a commute is simple. Like you get in your car, you drive 15 minutes to work. It's chill. You might have some traffic, but that's it. In a commute in, uh, in New York, I mean, anything can happen. I'm, I've seen, fights on the subway during my people are like cussing at each other and like pushing and almost punching because like 
someone, you know, didn't take off their backpack on the subway or someone, you know, was kind of pushy when they got onto the train. You know, I, I see that on commute wow. and you see people like, you know, coughing in someone's face and, and, uh, and, you know, you might see someone who was like sleeping and taking up a whole seat or a whole row on, on the train. So yeah, the commute, like, yeah, besides the commute, I mean, you see just a ton of weird stuff in New York. And I know that like from people who visit me, they're always people watching. They're like staring at people because they can't even believe the clothes that people choose to wear. But for me, you know, I've been there for three and a half years. I, I've become numb to it where it's like, oh, someone decided to wear that or like that fight broke out. I'm kind of numb to it where it's like, oh, that's just normal. Uh, but for someone else coming in from the outside, that's that's not normal, right? Mm-hmm. So what are some things that he fell in love with New York City? Yeah, um, I love the energy. Uh, even though the fast pace is not always my vibe, I love the energy. Like you wake up in New York and and you step outside your apartment and boom, the whole city is alive. Uh, people are walking to work and they're like, all right, I'm going to get stuff done today and I'm going to like add value to society. Like it's going to be dope, you know? Um, so I love the energy again. I love the ambition of people and I love the diversity of neighborhoods. Um, each neighborhood is so different and there's five boroughs, right? There's Mm -hmm. Manhattan, which is the most famous one that everyone knows about. People know Brooklyn, people know Queens, uh, the Bronx, and then there's Staten Island. And each borough is different, but even within the boroughs, the neighborhoods are so diverse. And, you know, whether it's by ethnicity or whether it's by just socioeconomic status or what people, you know, what people do for a living, um, the architecture, I love the diversity. And, you know, growing up in the Bay, growing up in the Bay Area, a lot of stuff looks the same. And even, even SF, there's a lot of diversity, but I think New York has like so much more diversity and everyone's also a transplant at least in manhattan so you meet people from all over the world not only the states but like people from finland and india i remember my classmates from you know china finland um india uh lebanon all over so it's you know you get so many different perspectives and that's that's how you grow right you learn from people who disagree with you and it was cool to just learn about people's upbringing in their respective countries or respective states around the U.S. Wow. What's one tip you would give to someone who plans to chase after their dream in New York City? Great question. Someone who plans to chase after their dream. This is, I mean, yeah, what I'm about to give is pretty generic advice, but like, you'll probably experience a lot of failure, especially in New York, because it's such a competitive city, right? Everyone comes to New York to be the best. So even if, even if you're, even if you were the best your whole life growing up in school and whatnot, and even after school, um, chances are like, you're going to experience a lot of disappointment. Um, but back to, back to my kind of decision-making technique and kind of what you talked about in terms of getting into podcasting is that you kind of, you have to take that first step. Right. And, um, what's that quote? I'm going to botch that quota, but it's something about like perfectionism is the enemy of like doing or just getting stuff done. Right. Like if you try to be Mm -hmm. 
perfect in all you do, that's probably not the best approach. I think you just have to take a step and even, you know, even when you're unemployed, like I was, and even when you're getting all these, when you're failing from these interviews, you're like, you're trying to make it on that Broadway show and it's not working. You just have to keep uh, waking up and taking that first step and just being like, Hey, like I'm, I want to soak up the process and I want to better myself, but like you have to expect that you'll be disappointed. Um, Oh, and also another tip for someone trying to make it in New York. And this, this has to do with building relationships, but also like networking, which I'm really passionate about. You mentioned that I I've coached a few people on networking. Um, But the thing about meeting people in New York is that you have to be, you have to make friends with friends of friends, right? If you expect to just come to New York not knowing anyone and like have this magical group of ten friends, you're and you're always hanging out, that probably won't happen. You you can get lucky and that might happen, but for me, from what I've seen, is you really build true relationships by meeting friends of friends and then being becoming intentional with them, right? And you'll probably have a lot of different groups of people, you know, but I think that's how not only community works in New York, but also networking, right? Like if you want to get that, that job or that next opportunity or that Broadway show, um, you're going to have to have those coffees with, with friends of friends. Um, so yeah, those are, those are a few tips I would give to someone. Those are all awesome tips and quick question about networking how do you find people within your field to network with? Is it still within the friends of friends network? Yeah. In terms of networking uh, for myself and for other people, I always tell people that a warm introduction is always the best, right? So if I, or someone sees, you know, sees a LinkedIn post and this person is, at a company that you think is awesome. And like, you're thinking in your mind, like, Oh, I want to work at that company in two months time in a year's time, whatever. At first you want to see if you have mutual connections. And, um, and if you do, you want to ask for an introduction, whether that's, you know, email introduction and that, that warm instruction is always helpful because it builds trust. I think networking and building relationships is always about building trust. Right? So when that person gets that email, saying like, um, Hey, Hey, Wesley, or Hey, Viet, I want to introduce you, uh, to, to Wesley. Like he's this guy I know from school. He's a great guy. He's working in so-and-so now, then there's always, there's already that trust. And then that could be an opening for, for a coffee or for a phone call. Right. Um, so yeah, I always try to go the warm introduction route and uh yeah once once you have that coffee um i always tell people like just try to keep it casual you know like a lot of people hate small talk but hey small talk for these types of situations can be a good thing for the first five ten minutes and like if like personally when people ask me to coffee like people in my program that i graduated from or people who just want to reach out and learn more about corn fairy i love it when they're just super natural and they just want to talk about like yo, Viet, like, what do you like to do in New York? Or, um, you know, you know, on the more professional side, like, Hey, tell me about one project you're working on. And like, what are you struggling with? What gets you excited? Um, what, 
what do you find in terms of working with other people? You know, just simple questions like that go a long way and just be like, just be natural and ask like good probing questions, kind of like what you're doing now, you know? Mm. So if you, you mentioned to me earlier that one of your favorite cities in the world has been London. You visited that city five times in your life. Can you tell me how that city became one of your favorite cities in the world? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I've been there five times. My most recent time was a year ago from today. And man, that was such a good trip. I I really miss traveling, especially during quarantine times. But uh, yeah, it's the the reason why it grew to be one of my favorite cities, even though it's such, it's such a popular city and like everyone goes there and, you know, I I wish it wasn't because I want to, I want to pick a city that not many people know, but honestly, it's just one of my favorite cities is because, um, so my joke is that London does everything that New York does, except way better and way more mm-hmm. efficient and cleaner and just more proper, right? So you take one thing like the tube, which is like the London's quote unquote subway, right? Mm-hmm. And then the tube is like so incredibly clean and the signage is really clear. Like you know exactly the locations and the stops that you're going to and the audio of the woman talking like, Oh, next stop is like, and then, you know, you're going in this zone and whatnot. It's so clear rather than a New York subway, which is always filthy and it smells bad and the signage (laughs) sucks. And like the audio is always so muffled up. Like it's like, Oh, the next stop is, you know, like you never, you can never hear the person saying like what the next stop actually is. So that's kind of my joke about London. It, it, you know, it does everything New York does except way better. Um, mm. But I love, yeah, I, I love the city. And I think it's really connected to the people too. I mean, uh, so this last time we, uh, me and my best friend, Brian, who currently lives in Denver right now, we, uh, we took this trip to London and we stayed with um, two friends from, high school slash slash college. And they had a house in uh, this neighborhood called Fulham and just like hanging out with them and kind of like romping around London and going to Dishoon, which is like a famous Indian restaurant there and just going on coffee crawls and trying to find like the best cocktails and, and going to uh, like a jazz bar and whatnot. Like it's just so cool to explore london and i just love yeah i love like a one one silly thing is i love the accents there mm-hmm. um, and it's funny because london has a lot of transplants even people coming from all different parts of uh, england and there's not there's not really like a uniform accent i think there's a i think there's technically a london accent but like definitely not not everyone has it um mm-hmm but I love the English accent for some reason. It's, it's just so like, yeah, it's generic to say, but it's so proper and it just sounds way better than the American accent. I feel like the American accent is so like, it's kind of like how, how I talk very laid back, very chill. So plain. Yeah. Very plain. But like when someone talks in English, like I, I worked one day in my company cause my company is global. So I worked one day in the corn Ferry London office and, uh, just hearing people take calls in the accent just it just sounded way better and uh people in the office were actually so 
friendly. Like I didn't expect, I've been to London five times, but for some reason I didn't expect everyone to be that friendly. But I, I walked in the office and I looked kind of lost and someone came out to me right away and she was like, Hey, can I show you around? Like, are you new here? You know? And I said, Oh, I'm actually, I work in the New York office, but I'm just here visiting. And, uh, and yeah, people smiled at me. People wanted to talk and oh, one difference between the London work culture and corn and the New York work culture is that in New York, um, the, the lunch culture is that everyone eats lunch at their desk while working. Like no one eats lunch together and like talks, you know, but in London, in the London office, I noticed that like during lunchtime, everyone was in the cafeteria, like having great time, smiling, cracking jokes, eating lunch together. And I was so struck by that. I was like, dude, this is sick. Like (laughs) in my New York office, everyone is just like, you know, at their desk, so bored, working, eating, but here they actually take a break, which for me, I think it's it's such a better idea from a productivity standpoint. Like you need to take that break and you need to interact with other people and have a laugh and have a smile and then go back to work. Like I think that actually makes you a better employee. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, London is just, it's just so cool, man. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you notice the ambition culture in London during your times there? Um. Yeah, I think I think they have it too. Uh, you know, I never, I've never lived in London, but I think they probably have a similar vibe to um, to New York. I think people are uh, ambitious in, in whatever field uh, they're in. Um, oh well, speaking of speaking of ambition, um, the second to last time I was in London, which was only two years ago or maybe two and a half years ago. Um, we, we have this one college friend who, who is very ambitious and I'll just call him, uh, Curtis just to protect his name. But speaking of ambition in London, I mean, this guy is like incredibly ambitious. He moved, he moved to London for several reasons. He was going to go to school in Oxford, and this is after he finished, you know, college already. But he wanted to do more school in Oxford, which is like obviously number one university or up there in the world. Mm-hmm. So he went to Oxford. He was going to help plant a church from the ground up, and then, wow. yeah, yeah. And then he also started a company, and he was doing crazy stuff like entering writing competitions and whatnot. And, uh, so I stayed at his house, uh, you know, two years back and just watching, yeah, this is such a good memory of me just thinking about his, his lifestyle, just watching him and his lifestyle in London was such an inspiration to me, even down to the way he cooked. Like I remember one day me and my brother, we, we were staying at his house. Uh, my brother was doing a semester in Oxford there at the time. We woke up and we were like, oh, dude, can we like help you cook breakfast? And he was like, no, 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 I got you. Like, let me take care of breakfast. And his attention to detail of just like cooking the spinach and cooking the eggs, like it wasn't anything special, but it was just that he was so present with his cooking. And you could tell like, even though it was just spinach and eggs and like ham, he was pursuing excellence. He wanted that breakfast to be special for us because we were his guests. And he wanted to care about us, you know, 
And he was like, no, no, don't worry. Like, I'll take care of breakfast. And watching him, and he was such a busy guy, right? He was running a company. He was going to Oxford. He was doing these writing competitions. He was playing in church. But everything he did, it was back to kind of my example of presence when I was a chaplain, like presence with people. For him, it was presence with people as well as all the different responsibilities. And for me, I could so easily be distracted, right? Like I'm doing one work task, but I'm thinking about something else. I'm thinking about a different part of life. But for him, he was so present. And that's what I want to take away from that memory in London, that this guy was like so ambitious, but like it wasn't this ridiculous ambitiousness. It was like, yeah, hey, I want to be the best at what I'm doing right now. And I want to be fully committed and fully present to the people in front of me and to the work in front of me. Wow. That's such an amazing story. Yeah. And I kind of want to talk about your time with your brother, Ian, in Oxford. Can you tell us about that experience too? Yeah. So I've had two experiences with him in Oxford the first time when he was studying abroad as part of the Westmont program. To the semester in Oxford. So that was, um, that was two years ago. And then this last year, um, you know, I did London first and then he visited London for a day. And then I, I spent a couple of days with him in Oxford. Um, so yeah, I'll talk about this last time because that's, you know, more close to my memory or more recent in my memory. Um, but yeah, man, Oxford is such, it's such a cool place because it's, it's, it feels so ancient. Um, the buildings are, you know, so old and you really feel like you're in this top academic institution. Uh, and you know, people there want to be the best, um, philosophers they want to be the best in their field again kind of similar to new york in that way but more on the humanity side um so yeah my time with him was cool i'll, t- I'll tell this one story um so there's this thing called the oxford union and it's basically this platform where people get to have these discussions and debates and a lot of famous people come in to fly and to just discuss and debate at the Oxford Union, people like Manny Pacquiao, like he had met Manny Pacquiao. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, it's like big names come there. Um, and people like Mark Cuban, you know, kind of these, these big deal people. Uh, so when I was there, he was like, dude, this, uh, dude, I, I forgot her exact name, but she's this famous, like, professional troll. It's kind of funny to say, but she's like, <laughs> she troll, I think she trolls people for a living. She's, she's like wow. a professional. I, I wish I remembered her name, but he was like, dude, I'm so glad you're here. Like, uh, this per this woman is speaking and we'll get to go. Cause like, I, I have this membership and you know, we could, we could, uh, we could check her out. And I was like, Oh, sweet. Awesome. Like this would be such a cool debate. So cool. We're gearing up, you know, to, to go to this, uh, to go to this talk. And we get up right to the front of the Oxford Union or the building where it's held at. And there's a bunch of protests. There's a bunch of students who are blocking the entrance and they're protesting. They have signs and they're like cussing and yelling and like shaming all the students who are going in. And I was like, him, why is this going on? And uh, he, he said, oh, because she's really controversial. Um, I mean, you, that's something you would expect from a troll. So, uh, so basically all these students more on, these students were more on the left. So they really disagreed with her, 
ideology and uh, just kind of everything she stood for. Mm-hmm. And we were like, okay, let's still try to go in because you know we want to watch her. So we tried to go in. And the security guy at the front said, hey, we're not allowing any guests. Uh, and we're like, what? Like, I'm like, he was like, I'm a member here. Like I paid for my, mem- my membership. I'm a brother, you know, is visiting and, you know, usually we're allowed to bring guests. And he was like, oh, sorry. Like this is the exception because, you know, it's, it's really dangerous because of all these, of all these protesters and, you know, just, just for liability reasons, we're not going to accept any guests. And like, we were so mad. And he was actually more mad on my behalf, <laughs> which, which, was, um, so it ended up, we, we couldn't get in, which was such a shame because I wanted to hear her talk, but I was like, dude, these protesters like had to, had to ruin it for us. Come on. Like I'm, I'm in Oxford for just a few days. Like you couldn't let me listen to this professional troll. I, I was pretty pissed. And pretty, <laughs> what you going to do? Yeah. Wow. That's such an amazing story. And what's one thing you would recommend someone when they're visiting London to do at least one thing to do while they're in London? Yeah, I would say one thing to do. I have a few answers to this question. If you go during, if you go during Wimbledon time, you're a tennis fan, definitely go to Wimbledon. No, I think it's, I think it might be outside of London, but Wimbledon, um, is the most, you know, it's the most famous tennis tournament. And I've been to Wimbledon once and it's, it's so amazing because like, it's, it's kind of that properness of London where like everyone who plays in Wimbledon has to wear all white and it just has this, like, it's all grass, right? It's all played on grass and it's such a cool experience. Um, and I, I was, I was actually thinking of going to Wimbledon this year, but obviously COVID, so I can't. Um, but I would say, yeah, go to Wimbledon if it's during tennis time. Uh, if it's just a regular time in London, one thing you should do, um, I would say, this is kind of like the touristy answer, but like you have to go to the Shoom for Indian food. Um, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's such a cool restaurant. The food is unbelievable. And one little, one short story from there is that, uh, when we ate at the Shum last year in May, um, mm-hmm. I was so overwhelmed by the menu because I had so many options, but we built some rapport with the waitress and she was super cool. So I was like to the table, I was like, Hey guys, like, how would you feel if I just told a waitress, like, just order for us, like pick your best dishes. We're like pretty hungry. Um, we just want you to order for us. And they were like, yeah, sure. Down. And I loved it. Cause this group was so fun to travel with. They were kind of like down for anything. And, um, yeah, that's what we told the waitress and she was stoked about it. She was like, yeah, sure. I would love to order for you. So I think that's one cool tip for when you go to restaurants, especially when you're traveling. Like if you're, mm-hmm. if it's like a really cool restaurant and one that a lot of people have recommended and you have that rapport and you're building that relationship with the waiter or waitress, feel free to just be like, Hey, I trust you. Like you seem like, you know what you're doing. Just order for us. We're medium hungry or we're super hungry or we're not that hungry Just order for us. And, uh, I promise it'll be like such a good experience. Wow. Those are such great tips. And now I want to move on to one of your most recent trips which is vietnam 
how is that experience like, especially being a Vietnamese American? Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I just went to Vietnam, uh, back in this last January and, uh, I've been, it was my fifth time in Vietnam, I think, or fourth or fifth time, but it's, it had been 11 years since I last went. So, you know, before as a kid, I didn't have, I didn't retain too much of those memories, you know, since it was so long ago. Um, but what I do remember is this last time and, uh, yeah, man, that trip was awesome. We, we did a lot of, uh, like street cart eating, street food eating. And that was probably one of the best memories. Um, it's funny because the, uh, there's a negative correlation in Vietnam between price of food and deliciousness. I felt like, like the less we spent, the better the food was. So you would eat this like <laughs> incredible bowl of noodles made on the side of the street. And it's like, the bill comes out, it's like a buck for that whole bowl. And it's like the best bowl of noodles that you've ever had. Um, so yeah, I think that was one of the highlights for sure. Just like taking all the street food. And I took a lot of videos like up close of these ladies making the street food. And, and, and the thing about street food is like, they have one specialty, right? Like this pho cart is like the best pho in all of Hanoi. Right. And the line is super long and they've made pho for years. You know, they probably pass it down from, generations to generations so like you can imagine how good the food is if they've been doing the same dish for like 34 years like it has to be super bomb right so that's what i love about the street food like you're getting the best of the best food right then and there um so yeah and just like as a vietnamese american it really you know like it, it really connects you back to your roots and uh, on a on a deeper level i think as a kid growing up um in america and being born here and being in schools where most of my friends were white um I, I feel like i had this shame of vietnamese culture right like oh i don't want to be vietnamese i want to be white like i want to pursue this whiteness i want to be like my white friends but then it wasn't until until i got older um, that I realized like, Hey, I should like reconnect with my Vietnamese culture. And it's not something to be ashamed of. It's actually something to be proud of because it's such a huge part of me. Like my, my parents are from Vietnam, you know, and even though they spent years here, like we're, we're Vietnamese American, like I'm, I'm both Vietnamese and both American. So I think in the last several, several years, it's been this process for me of being more proud and more proud of, um, of my culture and any, anything from the food, from the language, from the people and kind of what makes like a Vietnamese person. Um, and I've, I've seen that, you know, some of the quote unquote stere positive stereotypes of Vietnamese people are that, you know, they're so hardworking and, um, humble and they kind of just put their head down and they, they work, you know, in Vietnam, like that's what they do. And they just, they care so much about family. It's about, it's about the family, not the individual. Um, so, you know, those things I can really look to and be like, Hey, I want to like, I want to emulate that. I want to be more hardworking. I want to care more about the family. I want to care more about the collective instead of the individual. So yeah, it, it, it's still a work in progress. I'm still trying to like figure all that stuff out for sure. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. 
And what's one thing you would recommend to someone visiting Vietnam to do? Uh, yeah, I would say go to a bunch of cities, right? Go to Saigon, go to Hue, go to Hanoi, go to Halong Bay, um, and just really uh, soak up the street food. Like eat, eat the street. Like sure, like you might, especially if you're from America, you might be scared of you know getting a stomachache. But I can tell you this: last time, I didn't get any stomachaches. I did not get sick. My whole family did not get sick the whole time. Um, so yeah, just bring Pepto-Bismol, you know, trust, trust your, uh, trust your own stomach, say a prayer, uh, but really, um, dive into the street food and pay attention to how they're making the food, pay attention. They really love their craft and they're, you know, they're not doing it for the money pennies. They're getting like a dollar per bowl, but I think they truly do it because um, they care about their food and they know that this food could add, could add so much value to other people's lives. And uh, yeah, hop on a motorcycle. They have like, you know, Uber for motorcycles to so just hop on that back of one and uh, ride through the cities and realize that, you know, what whatever you thought of being in a tight space in America, it doesn't compare to Saigon. And just, um, yeah, just take it off and it's such a different culture that's awesome and i want to wrap things up with this question how would you sum up all of your travels into what you do in organizational psychology Ooh, that's that's a really good question we have to think about that how would i sum up my travels into what i do um, I think what, I think what traveling does to you is that it forces you to learn that there are so many different perspectives out there and that you do not have the monopoly on truth in terms of like the way you look at things and how I was raised in my one dimensional perspective as a Vietnamese American in California, um, I obviously don't know everything. And when you travel, you realize that very quickly and you realize that people do things a different way. And then instead of being like, oh, they're doing it wrong in Vietnam or they're doing it wrong in London, it's actually healthy to ask the question like, why are they doing that? Why are, why are they more collectivistic than individualistic or why are they more individualistic than collectivistic? And talk to the people in those countries, talk to the people in those cities and learn like why they do things and how that applies to my work and how that applies to you know the world of consulting and leadership assessment and diversity inclusion especially in my work in diversity inclusion is that you realize the power in diversity of thought like we always talk about um so in terms of my work in diversity inclusion I, a lot of the projects i do measure the effectiveness of um, like how diverse and how inclusive you are in your organization through multiple inputs, like focus groups, interviews, um, all that jazz. So what I've learned through that is that uh, the most successful businesses and the most successful companies are those that have very healthy and robust diversity of thought, right? And how do you get diversity of thought? You, you have to have, you have to hire people from a, uh, from totally different backgrounds. 
And that's what you learn through traveling, right? You, you realize that people learning from people from different backgrounds is such a healthy way to grow because you learn like, Oh, there's not one way of doing things. There's actually multiple ways of doing things. So, so instead of saying they're wrong, ask them, why do you do this? And particularly in assessment, like we're just learning how leaders operate and how, like, what are their personality traits and why they, they do the things that they do and what makes them successful, you know, and to have that curiosity and to have that mindset of like, I want to learn, um, you know, I think I've gained that from my travels and learning that there's so much, there's such a wealth of information to learn. And I just want to take that all in. So yeah, I definitely bring that to my job, uh, you know, every day. Mm. And I want to close with this question. What is one thing you would recommend to someone to live a regret-free life? Like networking, traveling, pursuing your passion. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend? Regret-free life. Um, I, I would say in the end, no matter what you do, I think if you focus on... Uh, people and being present with people and just bringing joy or bringing a listening ear or just, just adding something to someone's life. I think if you focus on that, um, you can never lose, you know, and, uh, like take work for example, it's like, okay, I could either like, I could help someone and maybe save the office, like what, what an extra 20 minutes, an extra 30 minutes. Um, but that's totally worth it because you're helping someone in need, you know, you're like, you're a listening ear to someone who needs to talk to you about a stressful work project or a stressful work colleague they're dealing with. And then when, and when you're traveling also um, to live a regret-free life, just focus on the people, talk to people and make friends. You know, if you're staying in hostels, make friends with the people in hostels, like um, that's a great opportunity. Like you're, you're spending nothing to stay in a place and you know what you're spending 10 bucks and you get to make friends. Like that's such a cool opportunity. So I think, um, when I think about like the times when I've tried to not focus on myself, but focus on people, I've never gone wrong and I never have a regret about it. And, uh, and also you never know how you impact people. The smallest thing that you think is just a small act that you do could impact someone five years online, 10 years online, 20 years online. Um, so yeah, just focus on like being present with people. And as, especially as we've seen through COVID, you never know when you won't have someone anymore. You never know when you can't see someone because of lockdown, right? So just cherish moments, um, cherish memories, take pictures, you know, journal about your memories, do podcasts like this one. We can recount on our travels and places we've lived at. So yeah, just keep it, just keep it people focused for sure. Mm. That's so amazing, Viet. And one quick final question: Do you have anything you want to promote? Yeah, I would say um, so. <laughs> I have that you mentioned networking, coaching in the beginning, and uh, so yeah, I have this very low key side gig that uh, I've been working on, and uh, you know, so far and right now, I've only had a few clients. Um, so it basically started out as helping them with this comprehensive exam that 
we have to pass in our grad program that I, I finished a few years ago. But then it turned into just networking help and kind of a, a shameless a shameless plug for the side gig is that I just got a call from one of my clients and he actually got um, an internship at a big pharma company um, as a result of just us having coaching sessions. And, you know, I coach him through stuff like networking and like how to grab a coffee with someone as well as just uh, facing his resume and how to show up in an interview and um, anything from, you know, uh, content that he could use in interviews and uh, questions that he can expect and just kind of like body language and communication stuff. So, yeah, that was a huge joy for me to hear that, like, oh, dude, he actually got a really cool internship at a pharma company. Like, that's awesome. So, yeah, uh, if you need any coaching networking, you know, networking is this bad word that we always hear that, like, it's like... You know, we imagine that guy with a coffee in hand, uh, kind of going around his office, uh, visiting cubicles, wasting four hours a day, getting no work done. That's not really how I see networking. I, I really view it as building trust and ultimately adding value to someone's life, not just taking, taking, taking. And so if you need any help with like, how do I even ask a professional who want to learn more about Takafi? What are good questions to ask a person? How do I show up? How do I have that small talk? Uh, feel free to reach out by email, viet.bui at nyu.edu. Um, and I'd be happy to, to talk about you know networking and, and coaching. Um, also, this applies to um, any career stuff you want to talk through, if you want to find your calling or passion or something we can work through that too so any any type of coaching related to that so thanks for thanks wesley for allowing me to do that shameless plug yeah thank you so much Viet. be sure to check them out viet.bui at nyu.edu mm-hmm. thank you so much Viet, for coming on my show it was so amazing listening to all these wonderful stories yeah, thanks, man. I mean, it's just, you know, think of all these memories. And again, like I said, it, you know, I often forget some of the stuff. So it's good to just recount on where we've been and how those places have really made a lasting impact on us. So, yeah, thanks so much for having me, Wesley. Uh, it's, it's been a great joy. Hey, guys. It was so amazing talking to Viet. He's pretty much been my mentor and has influenced me a lot during these teen years. It was great walking down memory lane with him and hearing all these crazy stories. Be sure to ask him more about networking, and hopefully it'll advance your career, too. Check out Recovering Travel Junkie on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, and check us out next time on wherever you get your podcasts. See you.